Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. Thorpe is coming in, gold and a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. Best ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Yes! To this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, we're joined by a man who carried a famous surname onto the professional sporting stage, where he lived the highest of highs and experienced the lowest of lows. But Travis Cloak would become a Collingwood star who won a premiership, earned dual All-Australian honours, and was crowned a best and fairest winner. Only six Collingwood players have kicked more career goals than the hulking left footer who played games across 13 seasons at Collingwood and the Western Bulldogs. Travis Cloak, hello. Thanks for joining us. No problems. Thank you so much much for having me and it's um, quite weird hearing those kind of things right about yourself. <laughs> well, I probably should have in- introduced you by your current role because you- you're the current head coach of the Eastern Rangers, of course. Yeah, well, I've kind of come back to where it all started for me. As a 15, 16-year-old boy, I was part of the Eastern Rangers and now as a 34-year-old adult, I'm uh, taking the reins now as head coach across the, the boys and girls programs, um, the under-17s and 19s now and could not love it uh, if I tried anymore. That's fantastic because COVID, like many people, forced you out of the role that you did have. That was a development one at Collingwood. But how are you finding about coaching at the club where you emerged? Because developing the next generation of player is a responsibility, but something that obviously motivates you now. Yeah, it is. And it probably was the massive motivator from when I footy. Um, I wasn't really too sure of what part of football I wanted to stay in or, or be involved in. And when I finished up, I, I spoke to a lot of different people in different industries and I, I fell out of love with football when I played. And that was my big issue. I, I just could not find the love or the spark to, to compete or play anymore. And that's why I finished up when I did and I, I got involved with the under uh, 18 National Academy with Lukey Power at the time and he, he's pretty much said come to New Zealand try me for a week come <laughs> for a week and do this and I was like alright mate I'll come and I left going this is the best like working with the next generation kids kids that are enthusiastic um, energetic about sport and fitness and footy and, I, I, and that's what pulled it all together for me so over the last three to four years it's always been a passion of mine to work with the next talent male and female um, so COVID was a blessing for me like I loved what 
I was doing it in five years, but I really wanted to get back into NAB and obviously the opportunity to get back here. Um, it, it's fantastic. I'm loving my new role and the people that are involved with. No, it's great to hear. And, and the reasons that you just touched on, which we'll explore later, it makes you the perfect case study in a way, given the journey that you've had in the game. So let's go back and revisit that journey, shall we? Let's go back to the beginning, Travis, your own journey, because you're obviously born into a big family, but a, a big football family as well. What was that like? Yeah, it's different. Well, I, I guess I didn't know any different. And, that, and that's complete honest truth. I didn't know any different. I, I grew up, dad was playing footy, both my brothers. Uh, my uncle was a, an AFL umpire, Peter Cameron. So footy was throughout the family. It was always talked about it. From a young boy, well, Gates was involved at, at Collingwood. He was um, training down there when I was like 12. And this is when kind of life started to, to mean something to me. And then obviously Cam gets drafted as well. And then there was talk, oh, you'll follow on in the footsteps of your brothers and also your father. Um, and at that time, I was just like, I'm pretty content just playing mud pies in the forward pocket here, guys. Like, let me just enjoy my footy. And um, before you know it, yeah, it comes around quick. And I got drafted as a 17-year-old when I was in year 11 at school. And before you know it, I was retired as well. Did you enjoy school? I love school. Um, I'm, I'm dyslexic. So obviously the academic side of things was a challenge for me. But mm. I found other things that I really excelled, I excelled in. And that's uh, the art um, and obviously sports. So... I was arts captain at school. A lot of people find it very funny that I um, did that side of things. But yeah, it was the creativity uh, that really sparked my interest at school. Uh, The friendships, the people I met at school, uh, long lasting. The friendships I have now aren't even completely honest, aren't all football related. A lot of them are where where life takes you, the people you meet along the journey. uh, And definitely some of them were were school related friendships. What sort of art are we talking, Travis? A bit of drawing and photography and the like? Yeah, all the above. Uh, Creativity. I did design tech fabric, which is clothes making. Um, I did photography. I did drawing. I did life drawing. Um, So I I did all of it. I loved it. So I actually did a a taste course throughout my start of my AFL career. Obviously keep my my education going. And um, I still do bits and pieces here and there. in that side of things, but purely just for my own interest and hobbies. Yeah, and I'm sure uh, as your career wore on, perhaps a, a pretty important escape from the pressures of the game as well, that sort of passion. Oh, definitely. And that's the realisation of what a footy career is about. Like, I got drafted at 17. Uh, both my brothers got delisted three years later when I was 20. Uh, and that's probably the, the time that I realised that football was a, was a job, not just a hobby. And that was also the year that I won my best and fairest at the Collingwood Footy Club. So it put life into perspective for me uh, at a very young age and probably took the fun element away a little bit earlier than probably what it should have. Um, and I guess that probably had the repercussions later on down the line that I just burnt myself out and, and lost that competitive edge um, at the age of 30. Was it junior footy at Park Orchards, Trap? Yeah, that was the local club, mate, running around as a little tacker. Um, playing around in the mud pies, playing three, four games on a weekend, trying to steal games of football with both my brothers. Um, it was fun. I, I Literally, my, my junior football career, to me and to my memories, was literally just running around, having a grouse time, training most nights in the in the mud, in the wet. And that's what we should be and, and, and should have been for a lot longer at AFL level, even for me. As you got into your early teens, though, and you were playing junior football out there, carrying the cloak surname, was that tough as a kid, perhaps, who was maybe even a bit naive to it? Oh, definitely. I was extremely naive to the probably the, the name of, of, of what Dad had achieved at AFL level, but also both Jason Cam. When I got to maybe 13, 14, 15, when, when footy gets a bit more serious and, and also parents getting a bit more invested in their own kids, like I was getting like haggled over the fence by, by different parents, um, abusive things, things I copped in my adult life as an AFL footballer. I was getting as a, as a teenager and I remember some days coming off going, this, this is not normal, is it? Like, is everyone else getting yelled at from that parent over the fence? And they're like, what do you mean? I was like, well, that one over there, you're telling me I'm no good. I can't get near it. I'm too fat. I'm too slow. I'm just like, I'm this 13, 14-year-old kid just trying to have a good time. So mm. 
I was extremely naive, um, not knowing that it probably didn't happen to all. But at the same time, it probably built that resilience that probably helped me also in, my, in the long term in, in my AFL career that um, you block out as much as you can. You, you do what you can and control the controllables. But obviously, after time and over time, you, you do break down and um, fall apart. So your father, your old man David, obviously played 114 games for Collingwood, Travis. He played more than 200 for Richmond. So as per father-son rules, you and your brothers Jason and Cam are obviously eligible to play for the Tigers, uh, as you are Collingwood, why was it the Magpie? Yeah, and I guess I'm going to really speak of my own choices there, and obviously Jason Cam for different choices, but the reason why I chose Collingwood over Richmond, and Richmond were, were quite interested as well, and um, the reason I went to the Pies was they were just moving into the into the Holden Centre at the time, the Glass House, and um, obviously, yeah, they had a little bit of success, didn't make the, the they made the grand finals in those early years and early 2000s, um, they are on the way up, and obviously that was kind of the, the main reason I went to the Pies, but also the idea of playing with my two brothers was, was a definite Definitely a draw card. I'd never really done. I'd played local footy and mucking around. That was it. But the, the image and the idea of playing with both my brothers on the MCG was it was like a childhood dream. I, I kicked around the backyard with them for many years, and you play out different scenarios. And it was an opportunity to do that at AFL level, so I really jumped at it. Was it the right decision? Well. I, it was, and it personally was. Was it right this in for Cam and for Jace? Maybe not. Um, I think personally I took Cam's position once I came to the club, so it made it a bit harder for him. So we only played a few games together in that way. We only played one actual game of football, all three of us together, and yeah. it does stick out. It's going to be a memory, but um, yeah, I would have liked to have had a bit more than just the one game, that's for sure. I'll ask you about that a little bit later. At this point, um, Trav, you, Dad David managed you at this point, didn't he? I know Ralph Carmotta come in later and Robbie Durazio later than that, but was David yep. principally handling your affairs at this point? Uh, bits and pieces, yeah. So, yeah, and this is an unusual, I don't know, I've got a lot of friends in management and that side of things, but fam- family are there, and, and there's always the idea that Dad got too involved in, in my football or, or in all of our football. He, he didn't. He completely honestly never gave me a piece of advice on my football. He really stood out um, in that for me. I knew he was my father, not a coach, and he really kept his distance in that idea. But yeah, he looked after contracts and little things like that, that as a, a young teen, a long, young 20-year-old, I, I had no interest with. I just, I don't know, you rock up, you go to an if you had this money in your bank, that was kind of life. Like, yeah. I didn't know these types of things. I was 17 when I got my AFL career going and I never had a part-time job. I remember asking Dad, like, Gee, what's this negative on my payslip? He's like, mate, this is welcome to be an adult. This is this is a tax man. Forever and a day, he'll always take that. So little things like that. So I um, that, that helped me amazingly in that space, completely honest. He really did. And I know he's had a bit of backlash over his, over that space, but he set me up um, to be the man I am now. Um, obviously, really some really smart decisions I made throughout footy that gave me the availability to really plan this next stage of my life as an adult with a young family. So, yeah, I'm forever thankful to him. But also, yeah, Ralph Carr helped me along the way. Robbie DeRajo is a good friend of mine, so obviously helped out in that space as well in management at the back end. But early on, there wasn't really much that managers could really do in that advertising space that you couldn't do on your own. But definitely now, there's um, the world of social media, and that's where managers do come in handy. But it's not the be-all and end-all. It was really the relationship that I had with these people that helped me with my football career and my personal life. So, you, Travis, you pick one. 101 in the 2004 National Draft, obviously under the father-son rule. Now, a month into your debut season of 2005, there's some injuries and you make your debut in the biggest home and away game of the year. Of course, it's Anzac Day against Essendon. You're 18 years of age. There's 70,000 people there. And, geez, you acquit yourself quite well here. Eight inside 50, 16 touches, a goal and an assist. But the thing that stood out for me, a game-high five clearances, if you don't mind. Yeah, I think that must be a mistake. Five clearances. <laughs> I don't think I had five clearances for my, my career. 
But um, yeah, I went to school the day before, so I was still complete, completing Year 12. So it was an interesting week, that's for sure. Bleached blonde hair. Um, I think I even had red boots on on the day. I can tell you now, the one message that Mick Moldhouse sent down to me on the, when I was playing was pull your socks up and tuck your jumper in and look like a footballer. That was the message that came down from the bench um, to me from Mick, and um, <laughs> it stood in my mind forever and a day. And, yeah, I, I owe a lot to, to Mick Moldhouse for obviously my start of my footy career, but Anzac Day, what a game to start. Like it, it, That game each year means a lot to me, Anzac Day, obviously for what it stands for, but the respect that fans have for the, the pre-game on Anzac Day, I forever um, love that day. So Mick said, tuck in the shirt, pull up the socks. What did he think of the bottle blonde look you were rocking, as you say, at the time? Yeah, I don't think he really approved of it, but it took a few years for that to go away. And, well, maybe I should have stopped earlier. It's getting a bit thin on top, so maybe it killed a bit too many hair cells for me. You mentioned this earlier, but it was the very next week, actually, that you, you played St Kilda and alongside your two brothers for, for the first, and as you say, the only time in an AFL game. But how special was that, playing alongside Jason and Cam? Oh, obviously it was, it was amazing. And that's your childhood dream, is you run around with your brothers and your siblings in the backyard and you reenact stuff. So we obviously got to do it at AFL level. That was fantastic. Um, for mum and dad, like obviously, yeah, a very very special moment as well to see their three boys running um, out together for the one side but completely honest it, it was the reason why we all ended there was a business decision like we we're all playing footy as a career um, obviously it didn't work out that way for all of us in each of our own careers we had our ups and downs uh, all three of us and um, it's a shame it didn't work out better but footy is a brutal sport and a brutal industry in the end and um, I'm thankful for the Collingwood Football Club for giving us that opportunity to play that one game together and I think it was a passage that went from Jason the back line to Cam and he kicked it to me and I don't know that end result maybe I sprayed it or kicked it on the floor I don't know that's the story that most people tell me but it was, it was a beautiful day and a memory that will cherish forever. Oh, as you should. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life, all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. We'll talk best and fairest honours and premiership success with Travis Cloak right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We're with former Collingwood and Western Bulldogs power forward Travis Cloak. Trav, the Anzac Day debut was special and you ended up playing 15 games in your first season, but when did you feel like you truly belonged out there? Was there a moment where you thought, hey, I can deliver consistently at the top level? Probably no. Completely honest, throughout my whole career, I was never... Um, felt comfortable. It was always not a week in, week out type of thing, but definitely you fluctuate, you feel like you had some good games, you're like, I'm here, I can do this. But um, it probably would have, would have been that mid te- mid 20s, I reckon, maybe 23, 24, that I actually felt really comfortable. Um, and then I could really shape the game that our team played. But you're always so anxious. Um, you get criticised from so many people, and I guess that always made me second guess what I was um, doing on the field. Uh, if my self worth was so important, also that my impact on the game was actually what people saw I was doing or actually what I was achieving. So you don't, you never feel comfortable in AFL football, and the day you do, it's normally the day you got to walk out the door. Yeah, yeah. Well, your first two seasons were were a roller coaster, as is the case with so many, you know, if not all, key position players who were making their way in the game. But 2007, that was considered your coming of age campaign. You played every game, you kicked 39 goals, you become a club champion at Collingwood at the age of 20. Yeah, it was just, it was young, wasn't I think I still had blonde hair too at the time. Um, yeah, and it was—it's something that I—I I never really 
understood the importance of a Copeland Trophy at Collingwood for Best and Ferris till I really got into the back end of my career. And I guess I realised some of the players and names that had won this award. Um, and then obviously, yeah, like guys that I was playing alongside with, like Paul McCurrier, Scotty Bird, James Clement, Nathan Buckley. Like I never realised these guys are actually icons of the game. I just thought they were my mate. And then to be alongside them with a with an accolade of a Copeland Trophy means a lot to me now. And that's something that I'll obviously pass on to to my children. I've got two young two young ones, a little girl Scarlett who's three, and a son Archer who's uh, five months. So there'll be things I will pass on to them, and hopefully they understand the importance of of what I achieved in my sporting career, but also the people that I stand alongside now in that uh, area. The footy world seemingly at your feet at this point, but your team that year, you go within a kick of beating the eventual Premier Geelong. It was an incredible preliminary final at the end of 07 at the MCG. It, this, this is a really sad thing in footy. Those games, I don't remember too much, um, completely honest. And I know we were a big game player as a team. We played some really good finals, but I, I missed enjoying the game probably as much as what I should have. But I always was thinking the next game can't wait for the next one, even if we won a lot. Um, but now, like, yeah, I look back, 2017, what a year. Obviously, yeah, 2010 was fantastic. 2011 was even better uh, as a team. Um, we just missed out. So I um, I sit back and I watch, and I probably read stats and stories from past games, and I really enjoy that now. But as a player, I, I really should have sat back and enjoyed the success we had a team. And, and obviously, this is a disappointment year of 2017, but mm. we achieved so much as, as a team, and that probably set us up for that 2010 Kills at the grand final, which we obviously uh, ended up having. Tell us about the draw in 2010. I mean, no word can describe it, but does it live on with you in any way? You mentioned there you find it hard to remember some of these games. What about this most incredible draw in the 2010 grand final against St Kilda? No, I haven't forgot this one. <laughs> uh, this was this was an interesting one, that's for sure. But yeah, what a, what a game. Like It was such a good game of footy. Obviously, it wasn't high scoring, but grand finals, you, you love a close game, and well, we gave you one of them. Probably the best one you could ever get. So yeah, we had our moments. St Kilda had their moments. Um, gee, what... Brendan Goddard had that massive hangar. I think I was like 20 metres away. You get a front row seat or something like that. It's pretty special. Um, but the, the feeling of when the siren went, of what actually happens or where do we go or what, what, what he's done. I remember so many scenarios getting thrown around on the, on the field. It's, it's a golden goal, an extra five minutes. Um, that's it, done. There's no winners. Hey, we come back next week. Like, it's all circled within 30 seconds, 40 seconds of the game finishing. So it was very interesting. Yeah, obviously an amazing achievement from the AFL to reschedule another game within seven days. And obviously for both teams to, to get going because you do put so much emphasis on this last game you're done empty out as, as much as you can because there is no week after well we proved there is a week after and obviously um, we did extremely well to get there in the end and um, to be able to hold the cup up for the, the last time or I guess the first week of um, October and Trav just for you personally I guess a draw throws up all sorts of coulda woulda shoulda moments that can you know haunt a player most of them unfairly now your goal in the dying minutes put Collingwood in front before obviously Lenny Hayes's kick eluded Stephen Milne for the equal behind. Now you kicked 2-2 that day. The two misses were considered regulation. Just in the week between the two grand finals, did that stay with you in any way or do you wipe? Oh mate, regulation goals to me weren't a thing really. I missed a fair few of them. So um, it's an interesting one. Like yeah, like every week. And this is a laughing matter about my goal kicking in my career and it's always probably removes me from being classified as a a better player than maybe what I was because my goal kicking. But I always had a theory that no matter what if I mucked up or or, or made a mistake throughout the game I wanted the ball back in my hand I wanted I wanted to go again I never wanted to shy away from the opportunity to succeed or be the difference from my team and my mm. teammates like mm. for me my teammates were everything I, I would walk over glass for them in a heartbeat and I still would for a lot of the guys I really would and I, I cherish the friendships that we have especially for that 2010 we still catch up every year um, we're still very close as a group and I um I, I don't think about the two misses um, there's always the outcomes during the game of 
hey, we missed kicks, we missed opportunities or stoppage clearances that obviously shape an outcome also. But I um I probably yeah, I probably would have kicked myself if I missed that goal late in the minute and uh, the last minute of the, the drawn grand final. But um I guess the mystery of me, I sometimes kick the ones you weren't expe- expecting, but miss the ones that you thought I should have uh, I should have picked up real early. You tried everything, didn't you, to improve the accuracy? I remember that the headphones at training with the crowd noise, uh, the headphones before games, goal kicking coaches, various routines and techniques. So what else did you try over the journey, Trav, to try and improve it? Mate, everything, anything you could talk about or think about, I tried. We did mindfulness, meditation, uh, visual learning, recording learning. Yeah, I, I put hours and hours into my goal kicking. I spent endless nights at random ovals, local ovals, just kicking balls on my own, um, kicking balls at walls at, at home in my garage or wherever I was. I was always trying to define who I was as a goal kicker. And I guess now as a coach, well, I could almost give you the best results of the goal kicking coach because I know so many different techniques. Um, I could pull anyone's goal kicking apart to analyse it. So it, it obviously it didn't click for me. Like the hardest part for me to learn and develop my goal kicking was I've just ran for 5k. I've just been beaten up the last 20 minutes, and now you're meant to pull your heart beat down, compose yourself, yeah. and go through a routine and kick this goal. That that's the hardest part to practice to reiterate at training. And I, I tried everything. I used to grapple and wrestle with Anthony Rocker on the field to the point of like I couldn't breathe and I couldn't get up off the ground and try to have a set shot. So I I tried everything I can when I retired. I literally tried everything in my goal kicking and I know people are always judge me for that one action but I didn't leave any zone unturned and um, it's probably one game, part of my game that I'm really grateful for the things and the people that actually worked with me because um, I know they invested in me and also that, that I get issue or, or problem that was such a, an issue in my game of football. Probably a sign of society isn't it? Uh, human nature that we, we target the negatives instead of the positives because one thing you didn't need help with at all was your contested marking and I reckon in 2011 Trav you, you could have marked a marble shot out of a can I mean, you plucked everything, 95 contested marks and an average of 3.8 a game. That remains the record. All-Australian for the first time, um, your marking form was sensational. Yeah, and, and it's something that I've always like worked a lot on is my marking. And, and not just necessarily contested marking, but just flight of ball, body positioning. Um, I'm, a, I'm a massive believer that of do the work because you'll get the reward at, at some stage. Maybe not one weekend or even one year, you will get the reward. So I, I worked extremely hard on my craft. Um, obviously, my main craft was marking and body work. So it was nice to get the reward that year. But it was probably a body of work that I put together over three or four years leading up to that that probably led to that season and then probably also gave the reward for a couple of years after that as well so um yeah i'm a, I'm a massive believer of of that hard work and, and even now with the, the boys and girls i work with I, I talk about ball drop action zones and all these things that i worked on so much i even put a lot of work on in the gym to, to make sure that if i got myself in a position that i could hold my own ground uh, no matter how big or small my opponent was or agile i could always hold that position as much as i could and it, it did it held me in good stead for, for majority of my afl career i, I had a staple weight that I always sat at. I, I didn't push huge numbers in the gym, but I was consistent in, in what I could do and I knew what I could do. And it definitely helped me in that contested side of my game. And obviously marking um, was a part of our game style as well that Mick had going in 2011. That was a bit of a territory uh, game, which obviously we've gone back to probably 10 years later. Mm. You were running right in the 2011 grand final against Geelong. Three first half goals on Harry Taylor, all of them long range quality. Then the Cats flipped the magnets, didn't they, at half time? And Tom Lonigan went to you in the second half. What are your memories of this game and your performance in it? Yeah, this, this, this is an interesting one. I used to always have it all over Tommy Lonigan, and then he had it on me in that second half. And it used to be the vice versa. Haley, you pulled me apart most weeks as well. So then 
I had it on him in the first half. So I can't give you a definite answer of what goes on. I still cross paths with Tommy all the time. He works at Geelong Falcons. I'm at Rangers. We cross paths. <laughs> we, we actually had a bit of a chuckle about this day the other day. You know what? I blame it on Reedy. It's all Reedy's fault. Pods went down to the other end of the ground, got injured. Reedy went on to Tom Hawkins. Tom Hawkins pulls the game apart, becomes a hero. We lose. We don't talk about the other end of the ground, mate. We leave my <laughs> game apart. I had, I had a good first half. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> hey, and it was Mick Moltas's last game, of course, before the much-debated coaching handover to Nathan Buckley. You touched on him before, but the handover that year and the succession plan that was, gee, scrutinised to within an inch of its life, did that destabilise the group in any way, Trav? I, I personally believe no. I, I've heard so many stories, and we've supposedly had a petition signed to get Bucks out and Mick back in. I never saw or heard any of this stuff. Like, I love Mick. I still do love Mick. Fantastic coach. Great guy. Always gave everything to me, and I did too. Bucks, I, I played with him, obviously, as a player. I love the way he went about his game. Fantastic leader. Fierce. Um, and as a coach, like he's got an amazing footy brain. And I loved working under both of them. Um, Bucks is obviously a very close friend of mine still now. We still talk regularly, completely honest. Like, the club moved me on twice within five years. And well, Bucks is still a good a mate of mine. So I think it says where I, what I think of Nathan. Mm. Um, I think he's a ripping person. He's got a great footy brain. He obviously came, yeah, with, with new ideas of what our, our team should look like and how we should go about it. And that, that's great as well. That's the evolution of what footy's about. But I never heard or saw any of these um, stories that the, the transition from Mick to Bucks was wrong or the the wrong thing for our, our club. Maybe, yeah, we should have held off just a little bit because Mick was at the top of his game. And I guess that's when Geelong saw, uh, sorry, Carlton saw it as well and they tried to um, snag him and get him across and it didn't work out. But Mick had Mick had our group together and he knew how to pull the strings very well and he knew how to get the best out of everyone individually. He was a father. He was a father figure to a lot of us uh, young men. And how different were they though, Mick to Bucks? Because while you might have found it seamless and you play good footy under both, that wasn't the case for all of your teammates, was it, for various reasons? No, it, it wasn't, yeah. And a, and a lot did move on after obviously Bucks came on and the biggest differential that I can say for two was Mick was a motivator Mick loved his history he'd get someone in to talk about Anzac Day or the importance of a game where Bucks was an educator Bucks would tell you about the X of the nose of football and the structure of the game so that was the big difference Mick had really good assistance in that came and rotated through and they would bring the evolution of his game plan but Bucks had it Bucks knew the game inside out he brained his football I'm completely honest that guy's head if he got inside it it'd just be a big footy bouncing around it, it's amazing what's inside his head and um, they've, they've got their strengths in, in both obviously yeah Mick got the success as a coach and also as a player Bucks has missed out of, so far as that ultimate success of the team as a player um, and he's, he's on the verge really of it as a coach so fingers crossed he gets it because I think he really does deserve it and he's um, he's turned this club around Collingwood I know there's a lot of talk about the, the off-season events that have happened at Collingwood but that guy has uh, buy-in as playing group and I really look forward to seeing what that club can do this year I, I'm still on board Collingwood um, I will be for forever and a day and I look forward to how the 2021 season pans out for him and the rest of the team You're with This Is Your Sporting Life brought to you of course by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives you can visit them online tobinbrothers.com.au Next the contract saga of 2012 that made Travis Clark the most talked about man in football. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with two-time All-Australian and Collingwood Premiership star, Travis Cloak. Trav, you're due to fall out of contract at the end of 2012, and your form in the years prior to that mean you are deserving of a long and lucrative deal. But it drags on all season until you put pen to paper in September after Collingwood loses a preliminary final to Sydney. These were difficult times, weren't they? Yeah, and there was a lot of innuendo about what I was doing and where I was going, but I think if you actually look at the detail, I said earlier in the year, like, deal with this at the end of the year, but nobody wanted to listen to me at the time. Everyone thought I was literally jumping ship and going elsewhere. And yeah, there was a lot of offers, don't get me wrong, come from other clubs. People that know me, I'm a mad sweater. I get really hot. <laughs> I'm obviously, moving out of Melbourne wasn't really an option for me. This is the, free, like the free mantle offer you're talking about? Yeah. So, like, it was there was options to go elsewhere, but at the same time, I, I love the footy club. I love the people. And to me, I'm happy to sacrifice financially to, to, for my friends and, and I guess for my, my footy club in the end as well. But yeah, it was a testing 12 months, that's sure. It, um, I think the day of the budget came out in Melbourne, like the Herald Sun had my, my face and my contract on the front page, you know, and it was kind of like a moment of like, really, we as society are more interested in my football choices or opinion than what we are as a country about what we spend our money on. And that was a bit of a chuckle to me, but also at the time I was just like, what are we doing? Like, this is this is bullshit. But we in Melbourne, we love our footy more than anything. So I understand. You appeared on the footy show in late June of that year. You did an interview. In that interview, you confirmed Fremantle's offer. I think it was around around a million dollars a year for five years. So this is 2012. This is a massive offer. Did, did you regret the detail that you gave in that interview? Yeah, possibly. Maybe I, maybe I was too naive and I did give too much. And I guess that was who I am and, and probably the person I still am. Like, mm. I, I want to be as honest and as open as I can. And I learned the hard way that if you tried to be someone you're not, extremely bloody hard. I wanted to be as open as I could. And sometimes when I got me foot in my mouth and things just come out and that was one of those moments. But it was eventually going to come out. It's football. There's no secrets. Everybody talks everything. But it was... Um, it was a stressful time, that's for sure, because within my heart, I, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to, play, I wanted to honour the contract that I had, and then we will take care of whatever would be done after that. And I always wanted to stay at Collingwood. There was, there was never an option that I wanted to leave. Was it used as a bargaining chip or a point? People will say yes, but for me, it never was. I sat down like with Bucks and Eddie and said, mate, I just want to get this done. Like, let's let's get it done. And they were under the understanding too. Like, we'll just deal with this when it was done. But obviously, yeah, media and, and people within the footy world wanted to know more about it and to obviously get it done early and it was a shame that it took so long but sometimes things do take time when they're involving Mm. obviously yeah financially a lot of numbers but also life decisions like I, I was a young man probably starting to plan about like where and what I want to do and probably where do I want to raise a family also in my life so it was a massive call for myself well not long after that interview on the footy show Nathan Buckley said I think he used the words you were damaging your brand Wayne Carey said you were even holding the club to ransom was was there a feeling at the time for you the walls were closing in a bit and that you, you did you have any friends on in your side in the in the Travis Cloak corner oh never mate no one wanted to be my mate. Um, let's be honest about it. It was, a, it was a conversation piece and yeah, I've heard some extremely good things and some interesting things come out of duck's mouth over the years. So um, I took that with a grain of salt. And yeah, people talk about brand very much. And I guess when this happened in 2012, like no one had, had ever had a five-year contract. It was two, threes, fours, math. So the thought of five wasn't even around. Um, and I guess look what we're talking about now in 2021. We have a player buddy about to finish his 10-year contract next year. Like we've got Brody Groney just a seven-year deal and now people are questioning him like it's part of what football is about as a player you want stability because football is a, is a short career path so you want to 
have a little bit of stability. Um, but at the same time, like, you don't know what is around the corner. Like, do you get injured and your career's done? Like, this, these are things that mm. go through your mind as an AFL footballer or, or as just an elite athlete in any sport. Um, yeah, it was interesting that year to pick up a paper and you, you read something different about yourself. Someone told you something new about yourself as well. Um, I definitely questioned my, my, my worth in football uh, that year because I thought I was playing good footy and I wasn't worried about the outcome, but I was also worried also about what people thought of me as a, as a person. But how suffocating was the speculation? I mean, was it was it even difficult to leave the house at times? You know, when you wake up in the morning and someone's graffitied your car or smashed your window and left a note saying, leave the, leave the club, you, you don't deserve this or that. Um, and then within a few months you go, maybe it's worth selling up and moving. So Jeez. that was kind of what I actually did in the end. I, I relocated suburbs I went from Richmond to Kew. Um, I bought a bit more of a secure house. You, know, you, you don't normally buy a house knowing that you've got a big, a big front gate and no one can see in and you can enjoy yourself and have security cameras. Well, that became a, an option and probably a priority at the time. Um, How often did that happen so with, the, with the car and the incidents at the house? Let's just say HSV that sponsored me at the time weren't very happy when I had to bring a car down every month for the broken windscreen or window <laughs> and say, I'm sorry. Um, but lucky, yeah, lucky I've got friends down there at HSV that looked after me and that space probably didn't send me also the invoice every month to fix the window but it happened happened enough it happened enough that um, it really made me make decisions in life about what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go Um, I always knew I wanted to play at Collingwood that wasn't an option but obviously it was yeah it was just fine-tuning a few things that gave me a little bit of stability Um, obviously yeah financially I sacrificed a lot to stay at the pies and no one ever talks about that Um, and also in that last year like I I forfeited my fifth year contract at the pies to do what was best for the club and that's Mm. why I went for the dogs like I wanted to try something new. I wanted to try something exciting and find that the love for footy once again. And I couldn't, um, but at least I can say that I tried everything in my football career to reinvent myself, find the spark, and also enjoy myself. Your relationship with the glove that would become something of your trademark, but when when did that start? Oh, if you look at my hands, they're very ugly. I've got real bad issues with tendons, and, and my fingers used to dislocate. And I used to strap them up, and it used to take me half hour, 40 minutes. And my hands were fatiguing and really hurting. Um, and then, yeah, the, I saw Adam Goods one weekend wear a glove, and I was like, maybe I could do that. And I literally reached out and got the exact same glove as he wore through Nike. Obviously, Nike looked after me at the time. And yeah, that cost me a lot of money wearing a glove. Collingwood weren't sponsored by Nike. They were sponsored by Adelaide, so they didn't like it. So they used to find me most weeks. So I used to pay a fine to wear a glove. Really? Which helped me professionally. And then obviously, yeah, that year that came out that my glove was cheating. That was interesting also. But anyone could obviously wear the glove, but it was cheating. Well, um, that I wanted cost to, me financially also. I wanted to ask you about that because that was 2016, which was a, a difficult year for you. I think you wore this glove that turned out to unbeknown to you, not be approved for use by the AFL. You wore it against Carlton and you wore it against GWS the next week. I think it might have been round 16. You had a cracking game. 12 marks, yep. 10, 10 of them contested, if you don't mind, and kicked four goals. And uh, I think Hutchie might have even done a famous segment on the Sunday footy show there where he was able to show just how sticky the glove was. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So it's the same glove actually available to a lot of footballers and a lot of them actually had it in their possession and mm. just hadn't worn it yet. They just got it. But yeah, Hutchie, um, maybe you should have put a bit of water on his uh, hand that day and realised actually how slippery the glove is. But it, um, it, it definitely did have an advantage. Yeah, bloody I'm not going to lie about that. But it was open to all AFL footballers to wear. It hadn't been approved or, or even seen from the AFL that obviously have to prove these things because it had just come in. Yep. Um, I was just unaware. I just thought it was a new one come through, a new model. I'll just wear it. And yeah, 10 mark. I said, well, Phil Davis doesn't really give you a lot of chances to be uncontested. So anytime you do get the footy when Phil's hanging off your back, it's normally contested. So um, who, yeah, complain- a- who complained, Travis? Do you have a, a line of sight on how it sort of got to the AFL that it was a that it was a problem? Yeah, I know exactly who it came from, but 
I don't need to, I don't need to classify or, or clear that uh, name out there because it, it's not great. But yeah, someone had a bit of a sook to the AFL, the umpires, because um, they would beat him. But it, it, it's footy, so I don't know. I, I literally was naive. I was just like, you know what? Thought it was a new model, new glove, wear it cop the consequences everyone had a bit of a chuckle i've still got the gloves sitting at home like i, I still wore gloves after that wore a different model like mm. i have real bad issues some mornings i live on some land in the area valley when i'm trying to pick up some horse poo in the morning and it's cold and my knuckles ache and can't use some of my um, little things and that's the reason why i did wear it gave me a little bit more stability in my fingers uh, the sticky glove obviously rolls of tape the sticky glove good for that sort of line of work is it no nah, the old leather glove mate the old leather All glove right. comes out now not the sticky glove <laughs> but yeah it's it's just the evolution, mate. As a player, I wore the sticky glove. Now, as a as a farmer, I pulled the leather glove glove on. Nice, nice. And it, it really did. The glove issue summed up 2016 for you in so many ways. You just couldn't take a trick. Uh, you were dropped three times that season. You were playing all over suburban Melbourne and on the old bog heap here and there. Uh, did you know what was happening at the time? Because you'd subsequent to that said you'd lost your love of the game, and I guess the passion and the will to compete at this point had left you. Yeah, and probably at the time, I didn't know really what was going on personally. I was, yeah, I was struggling in certain aspects of my game but I just pushed it aside and said you know what this is just life it's just what happens but um, yeah it really came to a halt in 2017 when I realised you know what it's not normal to not enjoy to play a game of footy like I love training I love going and being around the boys but I just hated and that was what it came down to did I think I was still playing good footy in 16 yeah I did but obviously other people had different ideas of where I was best suited and probably where the club was going and that was through conversations that I had obviously with Bucks and Ed and at the end of that year you know what we made the the choice and the decision to, to part ways and it was going to be best for the club and also myself and yeah it was I played at Casey Field and it was as you said a bog heap and first time I've been out there and the last time I'll ever go out there I left my footy boots by the fence and said these aren't coming out here buddy so, <laughs> you left um, <laughs> I, yeah I just walked off I was like you know what these aren't getting clean they're not coming back I'll just leave them here um, that was that was the story of the day like I, kicked some, I think our team kicked two or three goals today and I kicked them all and it was just like geez this, this is VFL footy at Casey and I just realised it you know what I don't have it in me to beat myself up every day in this um, area and that's why I left that's what the reason why I left the pies I wanted to find a love um, and I wanted to go to a club that was in Melbourne obviously but obviously wasn't the front page of the paper every day and well I ended up becoming premiers in 2017 which wasn't wasn't what I was after but obviously we we had spoke and I I loved what the club was about as a community. Um, obviously, I'd worked with Bevo previously when he was at Collingwood. And his philosophy as a coach was what I, I wanted and I needed for that probably loving part of my career to re-find the love. And um, I truly, I did. I really loved the first six months of my career there. I had an injury on round five, Good Friday. It was my 250th game. Zeeble split me open. And that probably the, the end of where I was mentally. I just It broke me um, spiritually, obviously my body physically, but I just mentally it just it literally chewed me up and spat me out. That was... Um, that was me on that day. We're talking to Travis Cloak on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Well, after this break, we'll revisit that difficult final season at the Whitnoval for Travis Cloak. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Former Collingwood and Western Bulldogs spearhead Travis Cloak is our guest today. Trav, I wanted to ask you if this was true, that in the first day or two at the Witten Oval that you told the Doggies boys to just play the famous smoke and shadows behind the windows comment to get it out of the way. 
Um, yeah, big. It, it did. It, it's the best. It's the best quote in footy, mate. It's, it's grown legs. Um, there's more footage to it. It's been cut, and I literally sit there and go, I don't know what I just said. Can we just leave that? But that's never serviced, and that and I don't want it to ever service because the myth now. The kids I work with, they kind of go and Google you and find out about you. That's the first thing that pops up, oh, and they no. have a laugh. And it's um, I don't know. It's one of those things in footy that it happens, and you know what? You can't hide it. You can't hide from it. Um, but what a, was, what a great icebreaker for the dog. So you just said, boys, let's not l- let this linger. Let's get it out in the open straight up. Yeah, Dale Morris is the one that actually played it. He's a, he's a funny man, and he kind of ran all the gags and the funny stuff at the dogs. And, well, you know what? Everyone else had a bit of a laugh at my extent that day, but you know what? We all moved on pretty quickly, and um, yeah, it still gets mentioned to the day, that's for sure. And what about in your 12 seasons at Collingwood? I don't think you ever played the Bulldogs in round one, and yet here we are in round one 2017. The Dogs have been drawn to play the Pies in the season opener, your own, your old mob. Strange coincidence, I would have thought. Yeah, and in 2021, they've done the exact same thing. The Dogs beat <laughs> Collingwood and Adam Trelaw's gone there. So, it's um, yeah, it was an amazing, obviously, great height to the, the off-season. Um, I was born into the Collingwood family. Round one, you play against your old mob. So, it was a, it was nice. You know, it was really nice to get it over and done with. Um, obviously, I'm very close and connected with a lot of the Collingwood boys. Still am. Um, but to, to line up alongside my old, old sparring partner of Ben Reid at training, in a game was obviously pretty special also. So um, to this day, I still send Reedy the footage of that goal. He came over for dinner one night and I made him watch it also. So we have a bit of a laugh and a chuckle. Um, but footy, it, it's created so many good memories for me and that's definitely one of them. And um, I probably remember that game probably more than maybe the 2010 or 2011 grand final, to be honest. Yeah, right. And the goal was obviously a big moment too. They were getting in here, they were booing you and you, you celebrated it too. Yeah, it was, like, you know what, that booing, it, it really annoys me within our sport and probably within our culture that I gave everything for that football club as a, as a young boy and also as an adult. Um, I was born into that place. I sacrificed a lot for it. And then to have that kind of treatment on that day was, was disappointing as a player. But I do understand the game is emotive. So many people are so invested in as supporters. And um, it was a bittersweet moment for me, definitely, to have that goal and also to have the win. But I was really disappointed that that game had actually come to that moment. And I probably, yeah, after the game, I was pretty sad, I guess, for what had happened for the last two hours from our supporters' base. And, and probably from certain individuals within our supporters too that were obviously the face of it um, on TV through that way but just to see their, their reactions to the way things happened that day it was disappointing. You mentioned before the break the pivotal moment in round four of that year in 2017 when Jack Zebel uh, cannon into you after you kicked the ball inside 50 and you were really banged up after that. You, you missed I think four matches but am I right in saying Travis that such was your I guess mental state at this point that this was almost the highlight of the season for you because you were able to train without the anxiety of match day. Is that what it had got to for you? Yeah it was and um, it was a, a, an injury that I probably should have missed the remainder of the year. So I, I broke or cracked my inter, intercostal, which is your sternum. Uh, broke mm. all my ribs on my left-hand side. So it was a fair injury. And I never really had a proper injury in my whole career. So I didn't know how to cope or deal with it. Um, so my mentality was to try and get it back as quick as I could. And that really chewed me up and spat me out. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't move. I couldn't do what I wanted. But because of that, it, it created probably a bit more of that awareness of my mental health. My wife was pregnant 
uh, Becky with our first child throughout that year. So perspective of life changed a lot also. And I just, I really rushed myself to get back to play football instead of looking after myself mentally. I, I rushed my, my injuries, uh, I rushed my body, rushed my mind. And that's what my breaking point was. I remember one day sitting in the change room, I'd just come off the training track, it was a Wednesday, and I literally just broke down crying. I did not know what, what was right or wrong or what was happening. I just knew I couldn't go on the way things were. And I couldn't perform on the weekend. And that was literally, I went and saw Bevo and said, mate, I can't do this this weekend. I, I, need, a, I need to talk to someone. I need to do something. Um, and to, the, to this day, like, I'm actually really proud that that day happened um, because it made me self-aware of me um, and probably my, my mental and also physical state that I was in at that time. Social media, I guess, and the, the trolls that pervaded. I mean, how big of a factor w- was that side of it? I mean, it, it got to the point, didn't it, for you, where almost like the opinion of strangers hiding behind keyboards became you know, more important to you than the, the coach or your teammate? Bloody earth, it did. Um, yeah, you wake up in the morning and read social media or just news articles about yourself and the comments and you do, you think that's the gospel. Uh, you think they know you better. In reality, like, they don't know you from a bar of soap, but that's exactly what I thought. And um, I don't know I don't know what we're going to do in this space because it's still a massive issue in society, but it's obviously going to be part of our game going forward because social media is not going anywhere. It's, it's a huge part, but it, it broke me down. Um, I remember coming off games and without even going into the coaches' meeting and seeing what Bucks or Mick or any of our coaches had to say, you'd check your phone and you read your Twitter and you had a good game or bad day, and that was the way you justified how you played because of what people thought in that space. And I still see it to this day, um, AFL players coming off and, and really being aware of what, what's happening or being said in there. And it's, it's not healthy, but you're... You're looking for justification from someone or something that isn't there. Yeah, and people say just get off it, but it's really not that simple, is it? I guess in this age of, you know, brand power, electronic media, apps, devices and such, it, it is an addiction, isn't it? Bloody oath it is. And um, I, I, to say, I use Instagram, I have Twitter, um, I don't use Facebook, but I, I really battle with it still. Um, I don't post a lot. I, I do scroll, yeah. I look through to see what my friends and family are up to. Um, I try not to Google or search my name or read articles now that come up about me because it's not healthy it doesn't help me um and it doesn't help me of where i want to go and what i want to portray to to the boys and girls i work with now i really want to post and talk about positive image uh, positive mental state um and enjoyment of of the sport or the level they're playing at so for me to preach that to them and go go about it and probably drink your own bath water and try and find something about yourself to justify how you're feeling isn't correct so I try to stay off it as much as I can and and share a positive image of how to use social media now is very important to me. And in that last year, in your last few months as an AFL player, I mean, you really took that courageous step to, I guess, reveal your mental health battles, didn't you? And you you ended up stepping away from the game for a period of time. And just incredible to hear that because of that admission, you were later sledged multiple times by the same player in a VFL game, weren't you? I mean, it is incredible for a lot of people to hear that. Did you or have you heard from that player since? Is that, is that player still playing, Trev? Yeah, he's, he's moved clubs. He's obviously not at his original club from when he, when that happened. He's moved to another AFL club, and I believe he might be on a list. I'm not too sure. Don't, don't get me wrong. He didn't light the world on fire in his AFL career, so maybe a bit of sweet. But, um, yeah, it was it was a testing time. I literally said to Bevo, like, I, I want to play, but I don't want to play AFL football. Yeah, I want to play VFL. I want to try to find him, you know what, and love the game. Um, he gave me the opportunity to start in the midfield as well. Like, that's never happened in 30 years of my AFL <laughs> career. So, he, he gave me just a different look to try to have fun in that in that um, game to try to find the love for me and yeah to come up across 
come up against someone to, to use something against you in that way was quite disgusting. I brought it up straight away with the umpire in the middle of the game. I said, you deal with this now or I'll deal with it personally. And I it won't end well either for, for yourself or the player. So yeah, it was a little bit of a threat. Um, obviously, yeah, it's just before half time, and the umpire came back and said, "I've, I've made, made note of it. We've spoken to the player and also the coach, and, and I was really happy with what the umpire had done then. Well, it didn't stop the player. It happened again in the second half. I literally felt like just you know walking off the field, grabbing my bags and leaving. That's literally how I felt, and I was, so I was a little bit disappointed with the club that they didn't follow through. The, sorry, the club or the player. Um, they reached out once, but not from the player, and that was it. Yeah, the Western Bulldogs did everything they could. They really could. They were fantastic in that space, very supportive. Brett Prismal, who's their well-being coordinator, and still is. He's an amazing man and, and fantastic for me as well to work with. Trav, I know we've spoken on some of the sort of darker chapters at the end of a, a marvellous career, but I, to hear it in your voice, you're in a much better place now. Lovely wife, Rebecca, the daughter, your daughter, Scarlett, you've mentioned, and, and your little fella, Archie, multiple times in our, in our chat. How good is being a dad? Best. It's probably the best thing you could actually do. And I, I know, like we joke about and say these type of things, but um, they put a smile on my face every day. I love them very dearly. Uh, and keep me very entertained. It's been great to catch up today, Trav. Your career, well, it's been described as something of a rise and fall, but I reckon as time goes on, there's no doubt your incredible feats on the field will dominate the memory of you as a player. You're a colossal presence, towering mark, prodigious kick. You could take the game away from sides in a moment, and the biggest roars from the Black and White Army definitely followed your booming goals. Well done on all you achieved. Best of luck with what still lies ahead at the Rangers, and thanks for joining us. No problem. Thank you so much for having me on board. And thank you for joining us. Also, you've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Jump online to find tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.